you haven't already or weren't able to get there in time, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10. I've mentioned this before in public, but occasionally I have blood sugar troubles. So if you see me being a bad example in the front row as a pastor and eating granola bars and various other sorts of food, I'm not intending to be disrespectful. Uh, but rather to stay awake and alert. So, thank you for your patience. Church, at the uh, outset of this sermon, I I want to sincerely thank you for the way that that you have responded over the last week to the news of uh, Gene's resignation. Uh, For those of you who are visiting for the first time or were not with us last Sunday. Our senior pastor, uh, Gene Emerson, chose to resign last weekend uh, in response to a recent court conviction that raised uh, serious concerns about his public integrity and moral judgment. And uh, given the circumstances, which you can read about in more detail on our website, uh, we continue to remain convinced as an eldership Um, as many of you all have agreed with us, that um, accepting that resignation was the right thing to do, as hard as it was. And I want to thank you for the support, the encouragement, and the prayers that you have made for this eldership, these pastors here, and just for our church. I I don't know if I have ever gotten more texts or emails or phone calls saying, I'm praying for you. I I don't know how to thank you enough for that. Um, I cannot thank you enough for that. All I can say is God is answering your prayers. And God is sustaining me and God is helping us. And um, many of you were very kind to sign up for what we've been calling Coffee with a Pastor. We've wanted to maintain really close communication through all this. Um, A number of you have come out this week in the evening to ask good questions You've expressed tremendous mercy and compassion toward Gene and Liz and their family. I, I want to especially thank you for that. Gene has told me that um, compared to different challenges that he's gone through, our church has gone through over our 20, 30 year history, um, the grace that he has experienced from you all this go around has been utterly amazing. Just amazing. And church, that screams Jesus. (laughs) That screams the truth of the gospel. And as your pastor, I commend you for that. I know that's a choice you make. It's not easy when somebody you trust or love steps down and your trust is shaken, but the choice that you have made to continue to pray for him, be gracious to him, pleases the Lord. And I want to thank you for that. Um, A couple... Different forms of counsel have come my way through these coffees with a pastor. Uh, Just to keep you up to speed, uh, first, many of you have been very kind to help us think through what can we learn from this kind of situation uh, where a senior pastor resigns so that, God forbid, it would happen in the future, but that we're even more prepared. You know, you, you really cannot anticipate things like this coming up. I certainly didn't. This was not on my strategic plan for 2015. Trust me. But many of you, as you've come to those coffees or talked to me, you've really had good feedback, good counsel on how can we be prepared to walk through situations like this well. I think God's helping us do that, but we've never walked through this before. We've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot to learn. You have a lot to learn. So thank you for your counsel in that regard. Um, The second thing that's come out on those coffees and just conversation with many of you that's really struck me is uh, you have been asking, Matthew, what is God doing in all of our hearts through this? That's a very insightful question. Because if we believe what we've always preached, namely the church is not built on a man, 
on Jesus. Then a situation like this isn't just about Gene. It's about us. Did you believe that? It's about us. And many of you have shared with me this week that regardless of what Gene did or didn't do, the simple fact that a long-standing public leader here would have to step down has put the fear of God in your heart. You know, I've heard statements like, if Gene could get caught up in a situation like this, who's to say that I won't? You ever felt that? I mean, I trust me, I've wondered that. I thought, Lord, do I have a target on me now? I think that's a good question. It's a humble question. It's a necessary question. And church, it's also the question I think that God wants to answer right now, this morning. So please hear me on this. I did not ask Will to read 1 Corinthians 10 because I think it's a description of Gene. Okay? Don't listen to this message as some sort of backdoor critique on what Gene has or hasn't done. I don't lead backdoor. What I think and say, it's out there. (laughs) Okay? I'm not preaching about Gene this morning because only God knows what's in Gene's heart And he is more than able to bring it to light at just the right time, with or without our help. So I'm not going to preach about Gene and tell you all the things that I think are there or not there. (laughs) That would be speculation, not preaching. So here's why I asked Will to read 1 Corinthians 10. Because as I said a minute ago, I'm convinced, I think we're going to see this more and more over the next few months, that this situation is not about Gene. It's not. Gene is not the main actor in our church right now. God is. God is. God does not relinquish the main actor role in the church of Jesus Christ. He hadn't given it to Gene, and he's not going to give it to me. Praise God, he's never going to give it to any of us. (laughs) He's just not. He's the main actor. Which means in this kind of situation, folks, the right thing to say is, Lord, what are you wanting to to tell me right now? What are you trying to say to our church? If you're the main actor and you want me to play in the background, give me a part. Give me words. Give me my lines. Folks, if God's word last week to us was a word of comfort, I believe that this week the Lord's word for us as a church is a word of warning. Kingsway, I want you to examine your life. And I want you to watch your life. That's it. I think the Lord would say to us, Kingsway, I want you to examine your life. I want you to watch your life. Because the content of your personal character is a really big deal to God. And a situation like this, regardless of all the details of what's happened, is a gift from God if we will receive it as an opportunity to be reminded, sobered, appropriately so, Oh Lord, I need to examine my life. I need to watch my life. Okay, why? Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Remember, I'm not talking about Gene. not focusing on him right now. I'm focusing on us. And I believe that Paul gives us two reasons in these verses why we need to watch our life closely. That's all I'm going to do this morning. Why do we need to watch our life closely? Why do you need to examine your life? Why do you need to watch your life? Why do I need to do all those things with you? I'm going to give you two reasons for that and spend a good bit more time on the first than the second. So have no fear as the first point is longer. Okay, reason number one. Why do we need to watch our life? 
Because presuming on the favor of God, absent a life of obedience, is the height of folly. It's the first reason. And in the first five verses of this chapter, Paul draws our attention to the history of Israel. Specifically, their history in Egypt. Actually, they're coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. So Exodus opens with the people of Israel enslaved in the land under harsh slavery. And Exodus says that the Lord saw their slavery Um, In a genuine sense, not in a political sense, he felt their pain. (laughs) And he committed to so moving in their life and in their world that he would rescue them from slavery. He saw, he knew, he promised to rescue. And he would do it by the hand of a man named Moses. So when the time comes to leave Egypt, the Lord himself leads the way, he's the main actor going before the people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, eventually parting the waters of the Red Sea so that Israel could walk through on dry ground. So, under Moses' leadership, all Israel, notice Paul uses that word, all Israel, all our fathers, witnessed the glory of God's presence. Okay, They were under the cloud. God was leading them in the form of this pillar of cloud. They were witnessing the glory of His presence and witnessing the power of His salvation. So they're perceiving the glory of His presence. There's the cloud. They're perceiving the power of His salvation. There's an open sea to walk through. Perceiving His presence, perceiving His power. And through both experiences, it is as if, Paul says, they were baptized set apart by God in the eyes of the world to be His people headed toward His place, the land of Canaan, under His rule. And the same thing happens today when men and women are baptized. Right? They are publicly set apart by God through a public commitment to be His people, His place, under His rule. Committing to follow Jesus in every area of life. But notice that Israel wasn't just set apart by God the Father. She was sustained by God the Son. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What's that talking about? Well, after Israel left Egypt for the next 40 years of wilderness wandering, God himself, the main actor, provided food for them every morning. It was called manna. What is it? Forty years. And at several points when they ran out of water, God himself, the main actor, caused water to flow out of a rock in the desert. They had food to eat. They had water to drink. And the reason, Paul says, verse 4, is that they were drinking from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In other words, the physical food and the physical water that God was giving His people in the wilderness as their sustainer was a picture, an illustration of an even deeper spiritual nourishment that He was holding out to His people. You do realize that their main problem ultimately wasn't just that they were starving in Egypt, getting their backs beaten. The main problem was they needed a relationship with God. And the Lord fed them and watered them, as it were, to give us a type to foreshadow the nourishment that He would ultimately hold out to every one of His children through Christ. I think that's why Paul describes their food and drink as spiritual. It's because he wants to connect Israel's story to the Corinthian story and to our story. Here's the connection. Later in chapter 10, Paul refers to the gift of communion or the Lord's Supper, saying, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? God's, God's sustaining grace, as I said a minute ago, in the form of physical nourishment was a type, a foreshadow of spiritual nourishment. Here's what that mean, means, Kingsway. When we share the Lord's Supper, we're going to do that later this morning, we are not merely digesting physical food. We certainly are doing that. Nor are we merely looking back on what Jesus did as if this is some sort of birthday celebration or anniversary celebration or milestone marker. We do those things, but we're not merely doing those things. Something else is taking place. We are being spiritually nourished. We are receiving an assurance in our hearts from God that there is good hope and good help in Jesus. He assures us of those things. And our spirit, as believers, as we share this meal, it's a spiritual meal. So here's what we need to know about Israel, just to tie this all together. Our fathers, they experienced the glory of God's presence, cloud. They witnessed the power of God's salvation, Red Sea. And they tasted of the spiritual blessings available to them through Christ. Listen, most of us, many of us, have known the exact same blessings, right? Right? We have, we have experienced God's presence in different ways. Even if you're not a Christian, maybe there's just a time in your life, something was going down, you were alone, whatever, and you just thought, whoa, I think like God may be real. Experienced His presence. You know, many of us have, have, have witnessed God's power. You know, if you're a Christian, you bet you've witnessed God's power. God has taken you out of the land of darkness into the land of light where you knew your need for Jesus and could trust Him. But even if you're not a Christian, maybe you've, you've seen God provide or, or you've experienced His care in different ways. You got some money you didn't see coming. You just thought, you know, thank you, man, upstairs or whatever. You, you've sensed that. Many of you have even been baptized. Right? You remember this church, you have to be baptized. You made a public commitment set apart to follow the Lord. Many of us have known the same blessings Israel experienced. So now look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You know who overthrew them? God did. In fact, you could argue that by saying most of them, Paul really meant all but two. Numbers 14, God declared that of the roughly 600,000 adult men who left Egypt, saw his presence, witnessed his power, tasted of nourishment in Christ. All but two were going to die. They weren't going to make it. Not pleased. Friends, that should tell you something. That should tell you, remind you, that the pleasure of God is not a guarantee. It's a gift. Not a guarantee. It's a gift. The fact that you have had spiritual experiences doesn't mean the Lord is pleased with you, okay? The fact that you have seen God provide for you or take care of you in some crazy ways doesn't mean the Lord is pleased with you. The fact that you have come down week after week to take communion here or about to this morning doesn't necessarily mean the Lord is pleased with you. Why do I say that? Why are you scaring me, Matthew? Well, folks, it's because spiritual experiences and miraculous provisions and communion observance, they don't draw the gaze of the favor of God. They don't. You know what draws God's favor? You know what causes His face to shine? Obedience. 
obedience. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. This. When God says that, we've got to listen. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Listen, the favor of God is not a guarantee. It is a gift. And it is a gift God only gives to those who live a life of humble submission to every word that comes from the mouth of God. And most of the Israelites didn't do that. Every one of those bodies in the wilderness was intended by God to prove the folly of of presuming on the favor of God, absent a life of obedience. That's what they were doing. Presuming on the favor of God, absent a life of obedience. And God judged His rebellious people for it. Look at verse 6. Paul says, These things took place as what? Examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I told you it was going to be a word of warning. It's a big one. Okay? And in the next couple verses, Paul gives several warnings to the Corinthians, warnings to us against three particular categories of sin that prompt God's judgment. Okay, so here's the first one. Warning. Warning. Look out for the sin of idolatry. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's actually referring to Exodus 32, where the people of Israel decide they are tired of waiting for Moses to come down Mount Sinai with the law of God. Their leaders, kind of MIA as far as they're concerned, they're tired of waiting and they say, Aaron, here's what we want you to do. Make us gods. Make us gods. So Aaron makes a golden calf. He makes an idol. He makes an altar to go in front of it. And in Exodus 32, 6, we read, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to the idol. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which in context has serious sexual overtones. And that example from Israel's history was exceedingly relevant for Corinth. (laughs) Exceedingly relevant. Okay, here's why. The Corinthians were surrounded by pagan temples. Surrounded. Idolatry was Rampant, And it was customary, even socially expected, that you would participate in these cultic feasts at the temples. And that you would eat all sorts of meat in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols. You should also know that these cultic feasts often included serious acts of ritual prostitution. It's a big deal. And joining in those celebrations was a real temptation for the Corinthians. But here's where we need to be honest. Here's where we need to be honest. We may not have pagan temples next to this building. I have yet to find one. But, folks, do we not fall into the same sin of idolatry? Whenever satisfying my desires or my demands or my preferences or my wishes becomes more important than pleasing God. I do that. We, we do that. We, we can turn anything, even good gifts from God like money and sex and children into idols. And you know that something, even a good thing, has become an idol when we are will, willing to sin to get it. That's how you know. When, when having obedient children becomes so important that you're willing to verbally abuse them, gentlemen, into submission. Or when experiencing sexual fulfillment becomes so important that you're willing to troll Facebook after your spouse has gone to bed 
or when a savings account is so important that you're unwilling to be generous toward a friend or a family member in need. What's that revealing? It's revealing idols. And, and, And here, please listen to this. Here's what's so sobering about Israel's sin of idolatry in Exodus 32. They managed to convince themselves that somehow they could flirt with sin and still please the Lord. Tracking with that? And here's how we know that. Because in Exodus 32, 6, after building the golden calf, listen to what Aaron says. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Say what? A feast to the Lord. Okay, translation. Translation. We can eat and drink and play around sexually and still please God. I can hold on to my money, do what I want with my money, and still please God. I can whoop my kids into submission like you better well they owe it to me, and still please God. I hope that sounds uncomfortably familiar. Because we do that. But it never works, folks. It doesn't work. And and here's why. Because there can be only one God on my heart the throne of my heart, at a given time. I mean, I'm tempted to put it, I mean, it's like if this, if this stool is the, my heart, and there's a throne on my heart, you know, I mean, I'm a skinny guy, so maybe we could try it, but you, you really can't fit two men on this stool. You can't. It's like your heart. You can only have one God on the throne of your heart at a given time. You can't have this worshiping the one true God while you're worshiping an idol. As Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You can't play both sides of the fence, folks. You cannot presume on the favor of God. Absent obedience. The first thing we've got to be warned against is the disobedience of idolatry. Look out for the sin of idolatry. Here's the second. Here's the second. I've got three categories. Here's the second. Verse 8. Look at that. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. When's the last time you heard a sermon series called the 23,000? You realize that's in the Bible. You know what else? God doesn't change. He didn't go through an extreme makeover between the Old and New Testament. Now, Jesus, in some radical ways, has given us better promises, better hope than any Israelite ever had, but fundamentally God hasn't changed. We live in a world that says what you do with your body is your business. You know what God says? What you do with your body is my business. How do we know that? Because a bunch of stuck-up fundamentalists got together and decided to make life miserable for everybody 40 and under? No, no, because God made you, friend, to worship Him with your body. And He warns us over and over again throughout the history of Israel that that the choice between submitting our sexuality to God or trying to submit God to our sexuality could not be more important. Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, an idol. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You know, I'm willing to bet that nobody started sleeping with Moabite women because they thought, I'm looking for a, a fast way to leave God. You know, I, I really think I want to fall away from God today. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go find a Moabite woman. No. No, the progression here is that they started with sexual immorality and ended up in idolatry, and here's why. Sexual immorality, sexual sin, more than almost any other sin, folks, has a way of destroying relationship with God. Destroying it. And their sin was such a big deal in God's eyes that 
20-some thousand Israelites lost their lives. So let, let me make a particular plea to you when it comes to sexual sin. Okay, and it's, here's the plea. Obeying God with our bodies is not about keeping our big toe on a line called purity. Pure. It, ooh, impure. Pure. How about, can I do this, God? See, so yeah, not touching. Close, not touching. Still pure. Don't get all legalistic on me, Christian freedom. You know what obedience is, sexually? It is running in the direction of righteousness. You, you don't stand on a line and pure emperor, you, you book it. You run toward righteousness. You, you don't chill on a line. You run in a direction. That's biblical purity. Just like the Israelites, so with us, God doesn't tolerate the slightest bit of sexual immorality. Because He doesn't change. He's not less serious about sin now than He was in Numbers 25. Do you realize that? So don't presume on his favor if you're living in sexual sin or flirting with sexual sin. Unless you repent, if you persist in disobedience, you're going to experience God's judgment. He is too jealous for his glory to do anything but that. We've got to look out for idolatry. We have to look out for sexual immorality. Here's the last category. Last category. Warning. Look out for the sin of impatience and grumbling. As if we weren't already convicted enough. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Okay, quick background. Numbers 21. Here's what happened. I'll read this, these verses. 4 to 6, Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. You ever experienced that? Lord, I'm not getting where I want to get fast enough. Hurry it up. Hurry it up. They became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die on the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among his people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Let me clarify something here. With this example that applies to the others, okay? Just because an Israelite died as a consequence of their sin does not mean they failed to inherit eternal life. doesn't mean that. Eternal life isn't something we earn. It's a gift of God. It was a gift from God back then. Remember I said he didn't go extreme makeover. It was a gift from God back then. And folks, it's a gift from God today. Freely given to all who trust Jesus as their Savior. But here's what the Bible also teaches us over and over and over again. Thing one, genuine saving faith always reveals itself in a life of consistent obedience. Always. Jesus is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus is a Savior. And if you have been saved by the Savior, you are a different person, namely a new creation. It's that big. Which means you cannot claim to have saving faith. You cannot presume on the favor of God absent consistent obedience in your life. I didn't say perfect. 
Guys like me need that. Otherwise, we spin into condemnation. Consistent. A pattern. And the second thing I would add here is that just because you have the gift of eternal life doesn't mean that you will escape the consequences of your sin and disobedience in this life. He's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for consequences. I mean, just think about it. As a parent, if you never gave your kid consequences for disobedience, would that be loving? No. No, God's the same way. Jesus doesn't get rid of our consequences. And even for a Christian, there are many cases where unrepentant sin results in death. Did you realize that? In other words, warnings like Numbers 21 against the sin of impatience don't get erased because of the gospel. If anything, the gospel ups the ante all the more because God has given us better promises and more reasons to trust Him and more reasons to not grumble and not complain in Christ than Israel ever had. If anything, our sin of grumbling or impatience is a bigger deal because of the greater assurances of the love and care and provision of God that we have in Jesus. It's a bigger deal, not a lesser deal. So folks, examine yourself. We've got to examine ourselves. We have to examine our life. We have to watch our life. In the midst of suffering, is your heart content? Do you continue to trust God? Or like Israel, do you question God's motives? Do you assign Him evil motives? And do you despise the blessings He's already given you? We loathe this worthless food. At its root... Every form of grumbling is an expression of unbelief. Because it's an assertion, in no uncertain terms, that I could do a better job running the universe right now than you are. Thank you very much. That's what it is. And it's the height of arrogance, which is why everybody but two died. So the Lord warns us in these verses, folks. He warns us against the sins of idolatry, sexual immorality, impatience, and grumbling. Because to presume on His favor, absent a life of obedience, is the height of folly. That's the first reason we've got to watch our life. Here's the second. This is much shorter. Second reason we need to watch our life. Here it is. God will only deliver from sin those who are willing to fight against sin. I want to explain that, unpack that. God will only deliver from sin those who are willing to fight against sin. And this is a warning, but it contains within it a promise. He's a good father. He doesn't let us pigeonhole him into warnings only or promises only. He always gives us a warning and a promise. It's like, Push, pull. You ever think about that? How does God help us grow in the Christian life? Push with a warning, pull with a promise. Push with a warning, pull with a promise. So, so look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, you want one verse in the New Testament to land on, to understand the fight against sin in the Christian life? You're looking at it. You're looking at it. This was the first verse I ever remember having my, my dad telling me to memorize. I am grateful he did that. Because there's a lot here for us. A lot here. But in summary... This means that God will only deliver from sin those who are willing to fight against sin. So I think in this 13th verse, folks, the Lord gives us three simple steps for winning the fight. Three steps. Okay, think think of these as means of grace that the Lord wants to use in your life to deliver you and me from from some of the very sins we've just reviewed. Idolatry, sexual morality, grumbling. 
The Lord has a means of grace to deliver us from those things. Okay? So here's grace number one. Step number one, if you would. Anticipate your temptations. Anticipate them. What, what does Paul mean when he says that every temptation you or I ever face is common to man? Well, he means that our temptations are predictable. Now, let's just think about this. You know, I've been in situations, I'm sure many of you have, where you, where you feel like you're just kind of going on your merry way, and suddenly you just sin all over the place. Uh, for me, a good example of that would be I pull in the driveway after work. Maybe I'm a lot later than I should have been. I'm worn out. I'm tired. I walk in and, hey, did you finish the budgeting, paying those bills last night? Oh, why do, why do, babe, can we wait on that? Why, why do you have to bring that up? Hey, Ethan, be quiet. I can't hear mom. Just start sinning, yelling, grumbling. I mean, you guys, you're tracking. You're tracking. And it can feel like, man, where did that come from? I mean, I just finished a meeting where people are like, we love you, Pastor. You're... I wonder what they think now. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, maybe I didn't see it coming. But you know what? If I had anticipated my temptation, if I had stopped to examine my heart, watch my life when I pulled into that driveway, folks, I would not have been surprised. Would not have been surprised. It's a long day at the end of a long week. I'm dog tired. I feel peaceful, but really I'm just numb from exhaustion. If I'm honest, right now I want nothing more than no questions. No problems to solve. A beautiful, smiling wife who is loving her job as a caretaker. Kids sitting in a row, in unison. Welcome, Daddy. And steak. And maybe a craft beer in the fridge. You know, it's just, that's what I want. That's what I want. And I didn't get it. So no wonder I lost it. Like my three-year-old, I just didn't get what I wanted. Got angry. Swap in your own scenario, okay? The, The point is, it's not that hard to anticipate our temptations. It's not. I mean, think about it. If if you're a single guy that wants a girlfriend. Well, you can anticipate that walking by the Victoria's Secret store is going to create a certain kind of temptation. If you're a parent with little kids and you know they've been up late with grandparents three nights in a row and you just picked them up, God help you, but you can anticipate certain temptations. (laughs) You know, if... I mean, to shift gears, maybe you... You lost a spouse of 40 years. And your wedding anniversary is coming up. You, you can anticipate certain kinds of temptations. Winning the fight starts with understanding your enemy. And the circumstances of your life may change and are even now changing. But hear this. The personal matrix of the temptations that you are particularly susceptible to often doesn't change. You know what mine are? Self-sufficiency, the fear of man. Old dead white guys used to call those besetting sins. (laughs) Just a pattern of temptation that I'm going to have to be anticipating for my whole life. I wonder what yours are. Do do you even know them? Have you ever stopped to examine your life, to watch your life, to understand what what temptations do I need to anticipate, not just this year, but, but today, end of a long week? Anticipate your temptation. Step two, trust your Savior. Anticipate your temptation, trust your Savior. Folks, I've got good news for you. God is faithful. Okay, I'll say it again. 
God is faithful. God is always faithful. And He is faithful to us in our battle with sin in two particular ways. He's not just abstractly faithful. He's particularly faithful. Okay, here's the first way He's faithful. He promises to so govern the circumstances and trials in your life that you will never face a temptation where victory is impossible. Never, ever, once will that happen. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. Isn't that interesting? I almost would have expected Paul to say, he won't let you be tempted beyond God's ability. You know, and say, well, if you're a real Christian, well, then you would be relying on God's power, not yours. And so your ability to resist temptation would be as infinite as God's. But he doesn't say that. He says, not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You know why he says that? Because God knows you. God knows us. He made us with limits. He made you with certain abilities to resist sin that, that maybe somebody else doesn't have in the same way. Personality can change that. Life experiences can change that. But the point is, God knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. And there are temptations that He will reserve for mature Christians that He will spare a new Christian from. Because he knows your ability. He knows your ability. Which means you shouldn't freak out when you watch somebody else fall into sin or temptation and you think, good God, if I confront that, I am sunk. You know what I would say to that? You probably are. But guess what? God knows that. And he's going to be faithful to you. You're never going to experience the temptation beyond your ability. Okay, here's the second thing. Second thing, second way God's faithful. He promises to so govern the circumstances and details of your life that you will always have a way of escape. It'll never be beyond your ability and you'll always have a way of escape. Okay, please hear me on this point. This, This is very important, especially if you feel like you've been stuck in the same sin for decades. Okay, I'll say it this way. Yesterday's sin does not change today's escape. It doesn't. You can have a train of sin wrapping around the earth in length. And it doesn't change the fact that today, brother or sister, faithful God is holding out a way of escape for you. Yesterday's sins don't take away today's escapes. And, and, and here's where we, we just need to be humble and, and honest. Humble because we need help. We need help. I can be staring a way of escape in the face and totally not see it. I mean, blind as a bat. Way of escape? No! No ways of escape around here. Hey, did you look right there? Oh. I need brothers to do that for me. You need sisters to do that for you. We, we need help to perceive ways of escape. And then the second thing we need help to is to actually take it. <laughs> At risk of stating the obvious, God doesn't say whenever the temptation comes, He will rescue you from it before you even realize it is upon you. (laughs) No, what does He say? Our rescue is active. It's not passive. God is faithful and He will express His faithfulness to you by always creating a way of escape that you can take. Fighting sin as a Christian isn't this passive let go and let God. It is so trusting the faithfulness of God that we are willing to express our trust in Him by taking the way of escape. And then, having identified it and chosen to take in it, we have to be willing to not give up. That's the last step. Don't give up. Don't give up. I... I wish that verse 13 ended this way. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to perpetually avoid it. Wouldn't that have been great? Done with that! On the bigger battles. No. No. What's it say? That you may be able to endure it. Oh, buddy, we don't like that word. 
endure it. Taking the way of escape means that you may be resisting the same temptations in the same way till the day you die. It's a call to endurance. But friend, God promises to be faithful to you and give you all the resources of his hope and help through Jesus that you need to endure. And I want to challenge you as a pastor, it's very easy to grow weary when you're enduring. You know, if you've ever run marathons, you're tracking with me. It's easy to grow weary when you're enduring. Enduring is by definition hard. But here's the promise. Our endurance, because of God's faithfulness to us in Christ, has an assured victory at the end. In other words, God is faithful and he will so arrange your temptations, even the ones you create for yourself because we're stupid, and so create ways of escape for you that you will be able to endure, friend. Able to endure. He knows our limits. And he knows that in enduring We come to learn in a way we would not apart from endurance that he's better. Because until you've endured temptation over a prolonged period of time, you may just be saying no because you know it's the right thing to do. And if that's the case, please obey anyway. But God's after something bigger. He wants you to learn over the course of a lifetime of endurance that he's better and more satisfying. And you will never learn that if it's quick. God will only deliver from sin those who are willing to fight against it, which means you need to anticipate your temptation, trust your Savior, and not give up. King's way, watch your life. Don't don't presume on the grace of God, the favor of God, absent a pattern of obedience, and remember that God only delivers from sin those who are willing to fight against it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. This is a big word. There's a lot in here. I've said much. We've listened much. And God, right now, I pray you would break in to this room. I believe you already have this morning. And grant the gift of conviction. pray right now for conviction. I pray there would be no generic feelings of heaviness right now, Lord, but specific awareness of particular sins that we might confess our sins and find you faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we need you. And I pray as we sing these songs and and with the Lord's Supper that you would continue to speak, to convict, and to encourage. Go ahead and stand. Call upon the Lord.